0: are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Would you grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to Mark chapter 11? We'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. sermon this morning is from Mark chapter 11, 12 through 25. Let's give our attention to God's good word. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for your word this morning. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself in a book and that we have this book in our hands. And we are thankful that through this book and the preaching of this book, you change lives, you change hearts, you change our minds, you change the way we live and the way we think and the way we feel. And Father, we ask this morning as we approach your word again, as we approach this book that you've written, that you would indeed change us. Change the way we think and the way that we live and the way we feel and the way we act. We, we need to be changed. And we praise you that this, this, this word that you've given to us is, is suited for this work. It's powerful for this work. It's good for this work. And So, Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray, won't you change us as we look at your son this morning? We pray this in his good name. Amen. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress, And we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We could pay a a bit of Bible tribute this morning. I could ask you where... Where is that in your Bible? Uh, It's probably not a text we're super familiar with. These words, they come from Psalm 48. And they strike us a bit odd if you you linger over these words. We're quite used for the Psalms to to call us to worship God. We're familiar with, with Psalms like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We're quite used to to psalms that encourage us to hope in God, to remember God, what he's like and what he's done. Psalm 23, the the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. But this song, Psalm 48, the song that we we read this morning is a very strange, peculiar song. This this song leads the congregation of Israel to, to sing about a city It encourages Israel to sing this, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Even more, the song uh, wants us to think about a building within the city, a a temple. The song even recommends an almost romantic sentiment towards this, this place. The psalmist calls Israel to walk about Zion. to to go around her, to number her towers, to consider well her her ramparts, to to go through her citadels. There's this romantic attachment, it seems, to this city, to this building within the city. And while this song, Psalm 48, seems odd to us, this song would not have been odd to any Old Testament saint or to any Jew that Jesus would have been ministering to. We can ask why. Why? Well, the song would make deep biblical sense to them because for an Israelite, for, for a Jew, Jerusalem and more specifically the temple was where all the lines converged for the people of God. So if we were able to time travel this morning and time travel back 2,000 years ago to be with Jesus, and if we were to think like an Old Testament Israelite, we, can, we could ask ourselves a, a series of questions and then we'll see how significant this city is, this temple is. We can ask ourselves, well, well, if I want to commune with God, where would I need to go? Well, the answer is, well, you would need to journey to Jerusalem and you need to draw near to the temple. You need to draw near to this holy city. Why? Because that's where God's abiding presence was to be found. Israel would sing these songs. My, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, Psalm 84. Or if, you, or if you wanted to find forgiveness, if you wanted to find reconciliation with this God, where would you go? Well, again, you would take a journey. You would go to Jerusalem. You'd journey to the temple and you would avail yourself of its sacrificial system. You would depend upon the daily sacrifices. You would be dependent upon the great day of atonement. You would be dependent upon the, 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 the priestly class and all that they do. Or we can ask, well... If I have an urgent request or prayer that needs answering, where would I go? Well, again, the answer would be the the temple. You need to take a journey because there you can make known your request and you'd be sure that God heard it. When the first temple was built, the king who built it, Solomon, received this word from the Lord. The Lord said to him, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Or if you were fearful of an encroaching army or a rising military superpower, where would have you have turned your eyes? Where would you look for hope and security? Well, you would have fixed your eyes upon the temple. The temple was God's architectural pledge that he was with and for his people. You would have sung songs like Psalm 46, where the people of God would have sang together, encouraging their hearts. God is in the midst of Zion. She shall not be moved. Or if you were dreaming about the days of glory to come, dreaming about days of peace, days of righteousness, days of unparalleled prosperity, you would have had in the center of your imagination the temple. Stuck in your mind would be a picture of the nations flowing up the holy mountain of God towards the temple as pictured by Isaiah. Stuck in your mind would be Micah's prophecy that the mountain of the Lord would one day be the tallest mountain in all the earth, that all the other mountains would be dwarfed in size. Stuck in your mind would be Ezekiel's end-time temple, this great life-giving temple where a, a river would flow out and water the whole earth and bring great prosperity. In short, if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew, you'd be supremely concerned about Jerusalem, even more so about the temple. And so here we are, we're in, we're in Mark's gospel. And as we consider Jesus' ministry as portrayed by Mark's gospel, it only makes sense that at some point or another that Jesus' story would involve, that it would intersect, that it would collide with the temple. How could it not? And this is exactly what happens in chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Mark's gospel. For three chapters, Jesus devotes both his time and energy to the temple. He looks at the temple... He makes a mess in the temple. He walks around the temple. He teaches in the temple. And he prophesies about the temple in these three chapters. But as we become acquainted with Jesus in these three chapters, it becomes quite obvious that Jesus doesn't treat the temple as a a normal Israelite. If If you skim read these three chapters, you won't find Jesus making sacrifices in the temple like the rest of Israel. You won't find Jesus worshiping in the temple like the rest of Israel. You won't find Jesus recommending the temple to others. Rather, what you find in these three chapters is a a wholesale pessimism towards the temple. What do we find in these three chapters? Well, we find Jesus judging the temple. We find Jesus critiquing the priests who serve in the temple. And ultimately, we find Jesus prophesying the temple's doom in chapter 13. This morning, what we're going to do this is to explore, we're going to look at Jesus' attitude and Jesus' actions towards the temple and what it means for us in light of the gospel. We're going to explore this text by focusing in on the theme of judgment that pervades it. And so this morning, we're going to break up our text into three parts. First, we're going to look at the act of judgment, and we're going to look at the, the reason for judgment. And then third, we're going to look at the result of judgment. So act, reason, result. And so we can begin by thinking about the act of judgment. So to make sense of our text, we have to remember back to last Sunday. Last Sunday, we we worked through the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the temple. And if we remember, that text left us in the lurch The momentum was building as Jesus approached the city. He was mounted on a colt, and there was a crowd around him, some before him and some behind him, and they were chanting. They were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. And So the chants, the cheers are getting louder. Jesus approaches, he goes into the city. But in verse 11, it all stops, and there's this eerie silence. And Mark tells us, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If you remember last week, verse 11 is a disorienting text. It's like Mark rips the rug right out from our feet, and we're left there laying on our backs wondering what just happened. And verse 11 is disorienting, but it's not a pointless text. We see that Jesus had an agenda. Mark tells us he had looked around at everything. We have to ask this morning, well, what was Jesus looking at? What was Jesus looking for? What did he have his eye on? Now we have to understand that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he did not approach Jerusalem as a tourist. Jesus was not a hick from Nazareth who, who came to be dazzled by the glitz and the glamour of the capital city and its temple. Later in chapter 13, we find Jesus' disciples starstruck by the city of Jerusalem. They come to Jesus and they say, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciples are amazed by what they see, but, but Jesus rebukes them. and He makes clear he didn't come to Jerusalem to look at the buildings. That's not what he cares about. And So we ask, well, what was Jesus looking for when he went into the temple? Well, the answer goes all the way back to chapter 1. In the ministry of John the Baptist. so We need to do a work of remembrance this morning. John arrived in Israel and his ministry created a a stir within Israel. He was announcing a a certain message that the the kingdom of God is coming. God is is coming near. And as a good prophet, he made a distinct demand upon the people of God. He, He called them to prepare for the coming of the kingdom. And how did Israel need to prepare for the coming of God? Well... John preached a very simple message. Repent, repent, repent. In the Gospel of Luke, we hear John exhorting the crowd with these words. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He says, do not extort money, but be content with your wages. In short, John is calling this this people to, to turn from their sins... And return to their God and live before Him. When we look at Mark's telling of this story, we find this very interesting detail in chapter 1, verse 5. Mark says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We need to remember that. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea were going out and heeding John's preaching. So here's Jesus, he enters into Jerusalem, Mark chapter 11, what is Jesus looking for? Well, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and in the temple, he was looking for what? He was looking for the fruit of repentance. He was looking to see whether these people had actually heeded the preaching of John, whether they're actually producing this fruit that John preached, whether they were actually mourning over their sins, whether they had actually turned away from their their wicked ways and that they were ready for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was looking for. And we can ask, well, what did Jesus find when he entered into the temple? What did he see? And we find the answer when Jesus returns into Jerusalem the next day. And, and Mark gives us the answer, the verdict, in verses 15 and 16. Mark tells us this. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry, out, to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus shows up, first day, he assesses the temple, he leaves, he comes back the second day and he gives his verdict. He overturns tables, he drives out those who, those who buy and those who sell. And he doesn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. We have to ask, well, what kind of verdict is this? If you spend any amount of time studying this passage, reading on this passage, there's all sorts of theories trying to make sense of what Jesus was doing. Some argue that Jesus was angered at the economic injustice of the day. Jesus sees the rich taking advantage of the poor, and so he, he's upset with it, and he overturns tables. Others suggest that Jesus was attempting to create a, a quiet place for the Gentiles to pray. While others say that Jesus was cleansing the temple. He, he came to get rid of the commercialization so that some real worship could actually take place. But I don't think any of these readings make sense with the text. They don't make sense what Jesus was doing. Jesus wasn't starting an economic revolution. He wasn't trying to revitalize the temple or repurpose the temple. No, he was acting out the verdict. And Jesus makes clear this verdict. This verdict. The temple is under the judgment of God. So the question is, well, how can we be sure of this? There's all sorts of theories of what Jesus was doing in the temple. Was he cleansing it? Was he repurposing it? What was he, he doing? Well, we have to look at the text. Again, Mark is this, this great storyteller, and as a great storyteller, he's not going to let us get confused. He's not going to let us miss the point of what's going on in the temple. So, what we need to do this morning is zoom out from verses 15 and 16 and, and look at our text as a whole. And when we look at our text as a whole, we notice a pattern. How does our text begin? Well, it begins with a fig tree incident. And how does our text end? Well, it ends with a fig tree incident. What Mark has done is he's made a fig tree sandwich. He's, he's put these two stories together, this, this fig tree story and this temple story, and he's, he's combined them. And what Mark is saying to us is this. If you, if you want to understand what Jesus did in the temple, if you want to understand Jesus' verdict, you need to read this verdict, this temple action, together with this fig tree story. They're intermeshed. They're combined. It's like a sandwich. And so we need to compare these two stories together so we can do this. In our text, Jesus comes to the temple and he's looking for what? He's looking for the fruit of repentance. And what do we find in our text? Well, Jesus approaches the fig tree and the text tells us that he was hungry. And he approaches it to see if he could find anything on it. In our text, Jesus examined the temple. And what did he find? He didn't find any fruit. Well, Jesus draws near to the fig tree He examines it, and he doesn't find anything on it except for leaves. Jesus pronounces his verdict on the temple. He overturns the tables. He drives out those who buy and sell. What does Jesus do to the fig tree? Well, he speaks to the fig tree saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. What is Mark doing? He's he's weaving together these stories. He's saying you need to read them together because they make sense when you read them together. And Mark drives the point home so that we cannot misunderstand what Jesus did in the temple. Verses 20 and 21. Mark says, As he passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withers. So Jesus comes to this, this fig tree and doesn't find any fruit. So what does he do? He doesn't cultivate it. He doesn't prune it. He doesn't fertilize it. Rather, he curses it. And in cursing it, he kills it. We find the tree withered away to its roots. And in the same way, we, we understand this temple story. Jesus comes into the temple. He assesses the temple. He looks at the temple. He looks at the fruit. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't come to reform the temple. He doesn't come to improve the temple. He doesn't come to sanctify the temple. He doesn't come to repurpose the temple. No, he came to disqualify the temple, and that's what those actions in the temple mean. Jesus is disqualifying it. He's announcing sure and certain judgment on the temple. And for further confirmation, we just look at the reaction that Jesus gets. His actions don't go unnoticed. What Jesus did in the temple struck at the heart of Israel. This is where they worshipped. This is where they found forgiveness. This is where they prayed was the pride and symbol of their nation. And, and here are the rulers of Israel, and they observe what Jesus does in the temple as he overturns the tables and as he speaks. They did not see him as just a, a small political opponent who wanted to make some economic changes. They understood him as threatening their way of life. And we see it in verse 18. Mark says, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. So Jesus judges the temple. That's what he's doing. But we have to pause here and we have to ask, well, well, why judgment? Why destruction? Why disqualification? Jesus, why couldn't there be a more peaceable route to your ministry? Why not just wait a bit longer and see if some fruit comes? Why not show a bit of patience? Why not just try some some miracle grow? Why not just get out your hoe and start weeding around and maybe this, this fig tree will start producing some fruit? But the reality that we see in our text is that there is, there is no improvement that can be made upon this present situation. This, this temple cannot be improved. If we go back to chapter 2, we begin to feel the force of Jesus' parables. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old the wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So we see it. Jesus shows up, and he's bearing the kingdom of God. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's enacting the kingdom of God. And his ministry necessitates a radical change. The fullness that Jesus brings won't fit in with the present state of Israel. And so Jesus begins to explain to everyone that would hear him why judgment is necessary. Key to our text is verse 17. Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus here gives us his his rationale for why judgment is necessary and why that is the only way to proceed. And we find two reasons for judgment. The first reason is, is this, the physical brick and mortar temple can never produce the fruit that God desired. This, this temple in front of Jesus cannot produce the fruit that God desires. So if we were to time travel again this morning, 2,000 years ago, and have been standing next to Jesus as all this was going on, you'd have, you'd have seen... Inscribed in the front of the temple sanctuary, these words, written in both in Greek and Latin, the words read: "No foreigners to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death." And so, here at the gates of the temple are these these foreboding, foreboding words. And the point is plain. No foreigners were to enter into the courts of the Lord. You do so, you're going to die. It's your fault. So here comes Jesus, and he understood that as long as the temple walls stood, and as, as long as the temple ordinances were in place, many, in fact, most all of humanity would be shut out from the presence of God. So Jesus reveals here that this temple, its walls, its ordinances, stand in the way of God's promises. They stand in the way of the fruit that God desires. And Jesus says, quoting the Old Testament, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus here quotes from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 is an outstanding passage because here God promises to gather the outcasts. The Lord says, speaking of a, a coming day, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. What Jesus does is he, he looks at this temple and the sign, no foreigners to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. He says, this stands in the way of my Father's desires. This temple has to be destroyed so that the people of God may be gathered. And Jesus pictures a day when the foreigner will not just... be welcomed into the temple, but the foreigner will actually be among the priests, offering sacrifices, enjoying the the near presence of the Lord. So Jesus argues if if God's plan is to go forward, if God is to get the fruit he desires from the nations, this current temple must be destroyed. Its walls, its ordinances stand in the way of God's desires. Jesus gives us a second reason as well. Jesus teaches that the the physical brick-and-mortar temple cannot change the hearts of the people of God. and So we have to understand this, that Jesus didn't come to a people who had abandoned the temple, who had abandoned its services. No, he came to a people who diligently used the temple, who were zealous about keeping its laws, who who made the daily sacrifices, who, who kept the daily worship. The yearly festivals were all observed, probably more so that, than in any time in Israel's history, the temple was in, in full swing. But even with all of this going on, all of the busyness, Jesus still didn't find the fruit of repentance that he was looking for. Rather, Jesus looks around at those who were in the temple, those who served in the temple, those who were worshiping in the temple, and he condemns them. He speaks to them words from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. He says, you have made it a den of robbers. We can ask, well, what is Jesus talking about? You have made it a den of robbers. Well, think of an old Western movie. Old Western movies always have the band of outlaws. They, they go rob a bank or they pull up a stagecoach, rob them of their money, and what do they do next? Well, the robbers, they, they go back to their hideout, they go back to their den, and there they, they count their money. Their greedy gains, they they make new plans to make more heists. There they find safety from the sheriff and his his posse. And according to Jesus, what has the temple become? Well, it's become a place where the outlaws hide out and find safety. As we think about it, Jesus' words are shocking. The temple was given to Israel in order to sanctify them and cleanse them from their sin. But instead, the temple has become a, a hub of sin and treachery. The saints do not dwell there. Rather, it is a den of robbers, a den of criminals and outlaws. The temple has been subverted from its purpose. And even though the temple sacrifices are carried on day by day, even though these men take part in the rituals of worship day by day, they still have hard and stony hearts, and they don't have the fruit that Jesus is looking for. We see that this temple, even when all of its sacrifices are being Use, being made use of, is radically ineffective to change the hearts of Israel. Here are these men in a holy place holding holy things, but they do not have holy hearts. And Jesus is arguing: if the people of God are to bear the fruit that God desires, this this temple must be destroyed, it must be disqualified. So we need to go back to how we began this morning. We said, the temple was where all the lines converged for the people of God. If you wanted communion with God, you would go to the temple. If you wanted forgiveness, reconciliation with God, you would go to the temple. You'd bring your prayers to the temple. You found hope in the temple. You would sing Psalm 48. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. What does Jesus do in our text? Well, he signals the end of the temple. He has come to Jerusalem. He's went into the temple and he's found no fruit. So he curses it like the fig tree. And we can be assured that it will wither away, just like the fig tree, to its roots. And you can go today, go to the city of Jerusalem, and you won't find a temple there. And if we time travel again, watching what Jesus did, hearing Jesus is preaching in the temple that day, this would be sobering news to consider. This is where all the lines intersected. This was your life, the temple. No temple, no life for you. No temple, no communion for you. No temple, no forgiveness for you. How could life go on for Israel? And it's here that we we begin to feel the weight of Jesus' words and actions as he confronts Israel. Jesus was not merely signaling the loss of a national monument, he was signaling the end of a way of life. He was signaling the end of Israel as it existed. Because of what Jesus did there, nothing would ever be the same for Israel. But we have to understand this morning that Jesus is not only a hellfire prophet who proclaims unrelenting judgment, it's there in the text. Jesus proclaims judgment. He's not shy about it. He curses the fig tree and it withers away to its roots. And he's no, he knows what he's doing in the temple. But we have to look closely at the text. When we look closely at the text, we also find precious good news for us, for ourselves. What we find is that when Jesus clears away the physical brick and mortar temple, this radically ineffective temple that could not change the human heart, that could not achieve God's end-time desires for the nation's, And when Jesus clears all of this away, what he's going to do is build a a new temple in its place. And we just get a hint of this in verses 22 and 25. Mark just gives us a little hint of gospel hope. Jesus turns to his disciples after they witnessed the cursed fig tree withered away to its roots, and he says this, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever sends to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This text is outstanding. It's amazing. You would go to the temple, what would you do in the temple? It was a place for prayer. You go to the temple, it was a place for forgiveness. You would offer sacrifices and find the forgiveness of God here. But what Jesus does is he disqualifies the brick and mortar temple and he ushers in new and powerful realities into existence. We see it in the text. After Jesus disqualifies the temple... Powerful prayer can happen anywhere at any time. Jesus exhorts his disciples. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Even more, because the temple, its sacrifices, its priesthood has been set aside, forgiveness can be had directly from the Father. You used to have to go to the temple to get forgiveness. Offer up a sacrifice. But Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. What was provided in the temple is now provided without that temple. We can ask Jesus, well, how does this work? How is this new way possible? How can prayer be had? How can forgiveness be had? And we see it. Jesus clears away the temple, this, this temple that was ineffective so that God's end time temple could be built. And this great temple is not built with bricks or stones. It is not the result of human sweat or labor. This, this temple that Jesus brings into focus cannot be found on a mountaintop or in a particular city. No, it's Christ Jesus himself. And this new end time temple is established through his death and his resurrection. So we've trudged through some heavy material this morning. This is a hard text. It's probably not a devotional text you run to in the morning for encouragement. Jesus and the fig tree and his actions in the temple. We began in the Old Testament this morning, Psalm 48, and we we considered how all the lines of Israel intersected at the temple. Forgiveness, communion, all of these things. If you wanted it, you go to the temple. And then we looked at Jesus' actions in the temple and we interpreted them Through the fig tree. What was Jesus doing? He was disqualifying this temple. And So now we're here. We're at the end of the text. And we ask, well, where does this leave us? What are we supposed to do with this text? How are we supposed to apply it to ourselves? We can be like the greedy investor who who puts his time and money into something and asks, well, what's the payoff for me now? I've trudged through this text. What is there for me? Well, the answer is so simple. And it's so beautiful and it's so good. Jesus is God's end time temple. For Israel, all of, their, all of the lines intersected at the temple. And for the Christian, all of our lines intersect at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's radically reshaping our lives forever with this text. And so we can think about this for ourselves this morning. We can ask, well, if I want communion with God this morning, if I want to see the beauty, I want to see the glory of God, If I want to know his presence, well, how can I do it? Where do I find it? What's the the access point for God's presence? Well, the answer is, it's the temple of God, the end time temple of God, who is Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He possesses the fullness of his deity bodily. You want to commune with God, you do it through the end time temple, Jesus. Or we can ask ourselves, well, I want forgiveness today. I need forgiveness today. I want to experience reconciliation with this God. Well, where do I go? Even more importantly, what do I have to do to get reconciliation with God? Well, it's unlike the Old Testament. We don't make sacrifices. We go to Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus who bore our sins and his body on the tree. It is Jesus who gives his life as a ransom for the many. It is Jesus who cleanses us with his blood. It is Jesus who has made a purification for our sins we go to the end time temple jesus or we can ask i have an urgent request i have an urgent prayer that god needs to hear how do i bring this prayer to god how do i bring this request in the presence of god how can i be sure that the almighty god who moves both heaven and earth will hear my prayer and again it's jesus christ Because of Jesus, because he's passed through the heavens, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And and there at the throne of grace, we will find grace and mercy in our time of need. Just think about it. When we pray, we always utter our prayers with these words, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And we do it because Jesus is our end time temple. In him, our prayers find power and efficacy. Or we can ask, well, I'm fearful today. I'm full of doubt today. There's trouble everywhere today. Where should I turn my eyes? Israel would turn their eyes to the temple. They would look upon the mountain and and see God's dwelling place. They would sing songs about it. But where do we look when we're in trouble? Well, we don't look to a building. We look to a person. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's eternal pledge to us that he is with us and for us. Jesus promises to us, he says... I will be with you until the end of the age. He is God's end-time temple. This morning, you're you're dreaming about days of glory to come. Dreaming about days of peace and righteousness and prosperity. Where do we center our imaginations? Israel dreamed about the temple. Micah dreamed about a day when the, the Lord's mountain would be taller than every other mountain. Isaiah dreamed of a day when the, the nations would stream up this mountain. Ezekiel pictured a, a, a temple with a great river, a mighty river flowing out of it and, and feeding the entire world. But what do we imagine? What do we think about? Well, we think about God's end time temple and it's a person. We think about Jesus. We think about that great day when Jesus Christ will be revealed, when there's gonna be a shout of an archangel and when we we'll all be changed in a twinkling of an eye. We think about that great day when Christ returns and his eternal kingdom will be established forever and ever. We think about that great day when we'll see our king face to face. He'll say to his servants, well done. So that's the payoff. That's where this text brings us. Jesus is clearing away the old and ineffective temple. And through his death and resurrection, he is setting up God's end time temple that will achieve God's purposes. And what a temple Jesus Christ is for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do give thanks for your word. We give thanks for your Son, the Lord Jesus. He is the end time temple, and he is what we need. And so we come to Christ this morning afresh for the forgiveness of our sins, for communion with you, for assurance in times of trouble. Oh Father, would you rework our hearts now? We pray. We pray this. In Jesus' good name, amen.